Greetings, dear listeners. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant Podcast. Uh, this is Jonah Goldberg, your host. So one of my disappointments when I had the fair Jessica, my, my wife, on recently is that we didn't get into one of the issues that she has converted me to, which I think is hugely important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll get to the Mueller stuff maybe at the end of the show and all that. But I want to talk about something really important. And it's the topic of bear propaganda. As, as I've written a few times, you know, when I've been sitting with my daughter, particularly when she was younger, we would see one of those like Coca-Cola commercials with the polar bears or some Disney movie where the bear is like adorable and cute. My wife would get shockingly mad. And some, one time she actually hit the screen of the TV and she would always yell, this is bear propaganda. Bears want to eat your face. And, um, and that's because she grew up in Alaska and she was – terrified for legitimate reasons of of bears because they're like land sharks with opposable thumbs and um, they eat your face, particularly polar bears. So anyway, uh, we wanted to take this very seriously. And so we brought in, you know, we don't usually bring in people from the worlds of zoology and all that kind of stuff, but we brought in uh, one of America's foremost ursine experts and, the ex and experts on the threat from bears. Ethan Nicole, welcome. Thank you for having me. And I, <clears throat> I need to say that I'm not a zoologist of any kind, but I had an entire team of them, and they all died in the making of this book. So, a quick moment of silence for those people, please. So I'll pour one out for them. I'll, right. I'll pour one out. Pour out a fresca. Yeah, there we go. That's what we're calling it. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you're the author of a book called "Bears Want to Kill You." Right. right. What's your book about? Well, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. The journey I went on to make this book because I set out to make the opposite book. You know, you, a lot of, this happens to a lot of people. You know, they set out to make a book that disproves, you know, the common held idea that your wife held. Right. And, um, you know, I watched lots of Coca-Cola commercials mm -hmm. and, you know, I grew up watching the gummy bears and uh, the Care Bears and I thought bears want to hug you. And that was going to be my, my, my thesis was the bears are cuddly. But as I set out, and my entire research teams were mauled to death and killed one, one after the other, entire cities destroyed, I, uh, I came around to the idea that bears are very violent. And, uh, and so I, and I ended up writing that book. So my thesis is that bears want to kill you. And not only that, but they will kill you and that we're all going to die from bears eventually. Oh, okay. 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 I, I, that's what I thought the thesis was. It's interesting you bring that up because um, Charles Murray, who's a frequent guest on this podcast until I have to denounce him for his next book. When I was writing my first book, he took me out to lunch and he gave me some really useful advice. He said, if in the course of writing a book, you don't change your mind on two or three really important things that you thought were true and turned out not to be true, then you're doing it wrong. That the true test of someone who is engaged in something other than just sort of hackery or fan service is willing to change your mind when pre presented with conflicting facts. And so the fact that you were willing to realize that, in fact, bears are going to destroy us all and kill us all when you thought they were huggable, lovely creatures, I, it just it strikes me as a little sad that you had to wait for the last of your team of zoologists to be eaten alive before well, you would come to this conclusion. I didn't – it wasn't the last because I did need a whole other few batches of people to do research. So I had to tell them that there were certain risks, but I wasn't really clear about what the risks were. But there's a huge section of thank you at the end of the book towards them. So I feel like that kind of makes up for the fact that they all died. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, 
let's put it this way. If – I should say when Jack dies in the course of producing this podcast, I will give him a gracious thank you. He'll get, he'll get a Jack monument. I will spit on your grave. <laughs> so when I was looking at this book uh, recently, I, was, I had it in the car. I smoke cigars in my car often because that's how I live. And You have a great wife. Uh, separate cars. Mm. It's the key. And, um, Poor kids, though. Uh, and so I was reading the car, and then I had to pick up my kid from school, and I said, I'm going to have this this prestigious author on to talk about this book. And so she grabbed the book, and she started looking at it, and the first question she asked me was, and I'm not making this up, was, Dad, is it is it really true that uh, bear attacks are more common than sunrises? And... At, at the time, I was like, I don't think that's – I said that might be a slight exaggeration. And then I had my crack team of researchers here, um, including Audrey the intern, who we'll introduce at a later time. And they printed out a bunch of – these are real headlines. Bear bites hiker on Hunter Creek Trail near Aspen. Grizzly bear that killed Canadian mother and baby was desperate for food. But that's – we'll get to that because you'd think that's not actually why they kill people is for food. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, so Many uh, Canada, mother and baby killed by grizzly bear in Yukon. A bear pinned a Montana teenager to a tree. He fought back with bear spray. I want to ask you about bear spray in a second. A 900-pound grizzly wanders into Montana Hutterite colony. Hutterite? Hutterites? Uh, I assume that is <clears throat> sort of like Amish, but with less baked goods. Um, bear kills man, mauls rescuer in Alaska. And it goes on and on and on. I mean, I literally have a stack of printouts here that is taller than me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and that's just from last month. And the, yeah, exactly. So I mean, it's amazing. So why is it? Why does the media keep this secret? Well, it's. I mean, it's it's simple and it's complicated. I mean, the media is run by bears. So uh, the bear run media. Yeah. Yeah. The, the bear stream media. Yeah. So I mean. It, there's a lot of headlines and stories. There's actually a section at the end of my book called Bear News, uh, or it's about bear news stories that never made it to print. Mm-hmm. And I just put a few samples in there of stories that were submitted to newspapers, and they never actually saw print because bears uh, intercepted those stories. So I, I want to read some of those in a second, but okay. you, maybe you can find them while I talk about this. But it's an interesting point about the bear-run uh, media. We all know that one of the things that got Donald Trump elected was the way he attacked the mainstream media and and refused to sort of go by their script. What people don't remember is that Ronald Reagan was actually the first president to openly talk about the the threat from bears. And his 1984 campaign had this amazing ad about uh, the bear in the woods. And we're going to run that audio. There is a bear in the woods. For some people, the bear is easy to see. Others don't see it at all. Some people say the bear is tame. Others say it's vicious and dangerous. Since no one can really be sure who's right, isn't it smart to be as strong as the bear? If there is a bear. So what is it... What So... What is it that we can do to com- combat with the bear, the bear menace? Well, R- Reagan, I think uh, a lot of what he did to fight bears from space was really good. 
That was good. I, I agree. Space Bear program. Yeah. Um, okay. So here's some of the headlines that you have in the back of the book, and these were these were never published. Never. Uh, it says on there if they were or not, but um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I see. It right. Okay. So bear news you probably missed. Bear kills cancer. Study. Crying like a pansy increases risk of bear attack. That's one of the reasons why millennials are being wiped out, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, GPS implant reveals bears are time-traveling, transdimensional, intergalactic ninjas. We'll come back to that in a okay. second. And then there's a list of the top ten bear fighters in history. All dead. All Obviously, mm-hmm. right. So your research led you to believe that, that bears are, in fact, as you put it here, uh, interdimensional aliens – and ninjas. Yeah, and like demigods probably too. And I explained to my daughter that one of part of your thesis is that bear reproduction that, that bear cubs themselves are a bit of a myth. Right. Right. Yeah, so why don't you explain how bear bear reproduction works? Uh yeah, a whole, whole section on bear reproduction because there's a lot of um, misinformation out there. Um I don't know how graphic I can get on this podcast, but you, know, you can the, bleep some things the, out. The standard uh way that creatures normally procreate bears bears shed their kind of common genitalia early on and then i have a whole graph of kind of the 12 10 or 12 main um reproductive organs that bears use that no other species has it's kind mm-hmm. of like a swiss army knife of reproductive organs um probably shouldn't get in too much detail very graphic yeah, yeah. um yeah. it's it, but it's a it's a family book and but when bears reproduce actually what's happening is they're all they're they're born at or they come into existence full grown um, but they can take on any size or shape. So, but also what a bear can do, like if a bear steps on a landmine and explodes, it just becomes more bears. Um, so what bears will do is they will break off into sub bears. Mm-hmm. So when you see a mother bear and two bear cubs, as people like to call it, it's actually one bear with kind of two sub bears. They're all of one mind, mm-hmm. and the smaller bears are probably being used to sneak into windows or to like jump through people and create holes in them and blast out the back of them or something. Um, Whatever, or they can throw each other. They just have, you know, they like to play around with uh, with, with crazy bear science and the things they can do. Do you remember Schmooze? Bear, people, no. No. Okay. So it was an old. It's weird. I every now and then I use it in in columns, and my editors are all like, "No one knows what a schmoo is." But I think it came from Andy Cap, and it was a creature that uh, could assume any form, and sort of like uh, there was a there was these Gleek creatures in the Hanna Barbera cartoons. Um, which I'll come back to, uh, but, uh, the schmoo, the schmoo could be, um, uh, take any form, be anything you wanted it to be. And that you could even fry it up and they were delicious. And they were sort of like, I think maybe like marshmallow flavor or something Mm. like that. But when I was reading the extensive, you know, research you did about the molecular structure of bears, it Mm. sort of seemed sort of similar to that in the sense that they're, they're kind of like walking fur colored stem cells of death. In some ways. There's a lot of human concepts and ideas that actually are stolen from bears. Uh-huh. Like, like as I talk about in the book, uh, most WWF, WWE, WCW wrestling moves are from bears. Most martial arts are from bears. Uh-huh. Most insults that we use are from bears. Most insults. Yeah. Interesting. So it was interesting the other day on this podcast, Jack called me out because um, he thought I was about to say North Dakota. Oh yeah, I heard that. And um, what was I was I actually saying? North Korea. Right? North Korea. Okay, yeah, yeah. And the reason I I bring this up is because it occurred to me that in fact the reason why North Korea, North Dakota was on my mind was because 
North Dakota's gone, right? I mean, the Bears have eaten everybody in North Dakota. There's right. just nobody. And they, because they control the media, no, no word gets out. Mm-hmm. Um, so and when it comes to fighting bears, basically all of your advice is to quicken your inevitable death, right? You have this you have a passage where you talk about people say you should punch a bear in the face and you say, no, 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 punch it in the nose because that's softer and that way you won't break your hand before the bear mauls you to death. Yeah, nobody wants to get mauled to death with a broken hand. Right. Um, so is there anything that we can – what if we started worshiping the bears like gods? I mean they think they're gods, right? I think they'd find that pretty hilarious. And then they'd eat your face. And then they yeah. So that could slow it down. But I mean, the main the main thing my book is about it. In a lot of ways, it's a it's a motivational book. It's a book about how to live life because it's accepting that you know bears will kill you. And so, how are you going to do life in that time before the bears kill you? Sort of like um, live every day like tomorrow's your last. Yeah. Live every day like you're about and to be eaten by a bear. And think about when you have that confrontation when the bear comes, like. You're going to be remembered in that moment for how you react. So uh-huh. um, try, yeah, swift kick in the junk or try to elbow drop it. Do something cool. Don't just go out screaming like a pansy. Sort of like in um, uh, the Mad Max remake, Witness Me, that kind of <laughs> there thing. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's perfect. That should have been my book. Um, so um, so one, la- one last thing on this. Um, one of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons has, is where a bear comes into town and – um, they ended up tranking him and Barney simultaneously and dragging them both away. But this infuriates the townspeople. And Homer starts a chant as the mob storms City Hall. And the chant is, We're here! We're queer! We don't want any more bears! We're here! We're queer! We don't want any more bears! <laughs> and I'm pretty sure they cut out of later reruns of that because I don't know how I would imagine this, but uh, I've yet to find it on on the interwebs. At one point, like Lenny asks Homer, where did you hear that chant? That's a great chant, Homer. Where'd you hear that? And he says, oh, they use something like it every year at the mustache parade, <laughs> which I just thought was hilarious. But I guess that you can't say gay dudes have, have mustaches. Huh. But anyway. What if we arouse that, you know, populism is in the air these days. What if we arouse that populist spirit that said, you know, maybe not we're queer, but, you know, because you're not supposed to say that anymore. You know, we're mm-hmm. we're LBGQTV, whatever, and we don't want any more bears. Would that help or is it just we should just give in to a nihilistic, you know? I think the best way to think about it is like if bacteria was doing that, like would we stop killing bacteria? I, don't know, I think we'd probably still try to wipe it out. Okay. So just surrender to the inevitable. Yeah. Okay. So on the spirit of surrendering to the inevitable, I think we will now stop talking about this <laughs> as a deadly serious thing. Um, Ethan, you're a writer for Babylon B or the head writer? writer? And, uh, no, head writer would be Kyle Mann. He's the editor in chief. And I'm the current, I'm the recent new hire at the Babylon B, though I've been working for them for about a year. Uh-huh. I'm, uh, I do a lot of the visuals. The photoshops, uh-huh. and I also do. I do some writing. I do a lot of head, uh, headline pitching, and then I probably write a few, maybe a couple articles a week. And for those who don't know, Babylon B is kind of a libertoid, center rightish version of the Onion. Fair. Yeah, I mean, it started off as a. I mean, it's a it's Christian news satire. As they put it. It's, uh, it was founded by Adam Ford, who's a Christian web comics uh-huh. guy, and uh, he sold the Babylon B a year ago. But the original. Writer was Kyle, uh, who wrote the majority of it, and he's still with the the B. So 
talk to me a little bit about Christian satire. I, I, I personally love hearing people who are members of community doing loving mockery of their yeah. community, right? And and there's so little room for that in public, you know, discourse. It's like all of the humor about Christians is out, you know, basically for sort of the secular media elite, believing Christians are essentially the bears in your book, right? right. And they're just yeah. <laughs> terrifying and evil and must mm-hmm. be destroyed. Um, so... Tell me about it. like how, how did you get in? I mean, what, what, how? <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm so tongue-tied. I'm just I'm looking at bear pictures. No, uh, but uh, so, um, uh, like, how is it received within the sort of? I mean, do you hear a lot back from sort of evangelical types who get that you're doing it from it. a place of love? Yeah, yeah, because I'm I, yeah I, I'm a Christian and I, I know a lot of Christians who like it. Uh, because I think that's the thing is like most of the jo- most of the jokes about the church come from outside the church, and there's kind of like three jokes you can make, and they just kind of get made over and over again, and they're yeah. just kind of like, and they're always angry and mean. When you go to church and you're part of it, it's it's a funny culture. I mean, you know, there's funny things about the church culture, and you admit you you admit it from inside, but there had never been a platform for it like that, and uh, and yeah, so there's there's so many jokes to be made from inside the church with love for mm-hmm. the church. Uh, just, just the cultural stuff, especially over the last, you know, because there hasn't these jokes haven't been made for decades, really. So, like, me and Kyle, we just feel like there's so many jokes. There's this giant pile of jokes that haven't been made, so we're just we've been making sort of low hanging fruit. Like, give yeah. me some for instances. There's so many uh, like worship leader jokes. Uh-huh. Um, we do nonstop jokes about bass players in the you know in church, like how you know if you venture off the first five frets, then you get excommunicated. <laughs> <laughs> I recently did one where we. Uh, where we said that Fender is introducing a new church worship, uh, church worship band bass guitar, and it's a it's a bass that's five frets, that's like five frets tall on the neck. It only has two strings. <laughs> <laughs> you can only play the five, you know. And it, yeah, it only has, yeah. And so yeah, so that I mean, kind of thing. Some, some of it poked through, like with I think was it Beto that everyone was talking about. He was like a a, a exuberant youth pastor. That was his vibe. I, that oh, came across. Yeah, it does say. I don't know if we've hit it on that or not. Yeah. We've gotten him standing on tables, I think, but um. Which is a long history of that in the church, right? Yeah. And that's a, it's a big it's Christian yeah. thing, standing on the table. <laughs> Jay Norlinger had a passed on a joke, and I'm going to mess it up. I think it was about Lutherans, or maybe it was just Minnesotans. But the thing was, you know, we're a reserved people. Um, I um, I knew a guy who loved his wife so much, he almost told her. <laughs> <laughs> um, which I kind of liked. Yeah. Um, and so how's Malon B doing? Good. Yeah, we're growing. Um we are we, we have a subscription now, so that's grown very fast and uh-huh. doing well. So helping us to branch out into other things. We're going to start a podcast pretty soon. Um, we're talking about doing some video content, but um, yeah, right now it's just. I mean, I'm I'm the second ever full time employee of the Bee, so it's really kind of finding and figuring out, still figuring itself out. It's three years old, but um, it, yeah, it's a thing that started out as kind of a hobby thing and it blew up uh, and. And it's become it's kind of carved out an interesting space because it's it has become a bit more of just a broad conservative satire mm-hmm. site because I, I don't know if there is another one that does conservative satire right now that isn't like I don't know it's kind of carved out an interesting place because of the bi- the bounds we put on ourselves because of being a Christian news satire site we don't we don't cross over into mean territory very right. often 
Um, but one thing that, you know, the, it's been political from the beginning. We get, like, criticism, especially lately, that we're, like, more political than we used to be. Uh-huh. But our political posts just, like, go way, 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 way more viral. So like, if you follow the B, you probably see the political posts more than anything else. Yeah. So you're, you did the one with um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez guessing everything was free on Prices Right. Right. And, and that, that was my Photoshop, too. <laughs> yeah. And that, that was one of the ones that um, – that Snopes had to fact check, right? right? Yeah, Snopes has fact checked like a good twenty, thirty of our articles, and that's what's weird. Like, I wonder if they do they fact check Onion. I haven't yeah. checked. I don't want to accuse anything, but it just seems weird that they keep fact checking us. But well, but that I mean, what's fascinating about it is that that I mean, maybe you distribute your stuff virally in a different way so that people don't. There's no disc. There's no disclaimer on the Onion stuff either. You would think. After the third time they fact check you, someone would say, "Hey guys, you do realize this is a this is a satire site. You don't need to fact check it." But there's well, yeah, there is this kind of weird, you know, the, so many people on the left, re, and I I've learned this over the years because every now and then I write funny things, right? I'm not yeah. I'm not a humorist. I don't want to be a humorist, but I write funny things sometimes. You're a funny guy, and um, looks aren't everything, and um, <laughs> and it really bothers some people on the left that when conservatives crack a joke. Right. And, yeah. Um, or that they can laugh at themselves. Right. Something like that. And it's weird how the Babylon B stuff seems to just make some people really, really angry. <laughs> um, for real. Like, I never get angry at The Onion when they do, you know, left wing. Yeah. Uh, making fun of right wingers. I, I get it. You know. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. it's, sorry. it's like, or it's like, I don't know if it's like territorial, like, hey, comedy belongs to us or something. Right. I don't know if it's like that or I think uh, Stephen. Um, like on his last name, he's on Conservatarians. Mm-hmm. Um, he made a good Stephen point. Miller. Miller, that's right. I was going to say more. He owes me money, but anyway, go ahead. <laughs> that you know, they, it feels kind of like you know the conservatives at their lunch table joking around, and uh, and then the the teacher comes over like, "What are you all joking about? What are you laughing at?" I'm like, "That's kind of like the Snopes uh, popping in, and you know, it's, it's like if you if we're laughing, something bad's happening or something." I don't right. Know. <laughs> what are you up to? <laughs> but it's funny though, because like, so I've I've had this long I've written this a bunch of different times. About there's a reason why comedians tend to be wildly overrepresented by blacks, gays, Jews, and Canadians because these are people who you know, take Canada, right? They're not Americans. We all know that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they're sort of the the Vichy regime working with the Bears in some ways, right? And um, but they grow up on our pop culture, but they have this weird critical distance from it. So they know their own stuff, plus they have this sort of observer's eye. The same thing goes on with sort of Jews and blacks, and and these days more, you know, gays and stuff, where they have to know their own stuff, and they also have this sort of slight alienation from majority culture that lets them find funny things to make fun of about it. Mm -hmm. And it's always sort of surprised me that there wasn't more of that from sort of believing Christians um, because they're alienated for sure from the majority culture, but it always kind of felt like you weren't allowed to sort of play that game. Is there that problem? Do you ever run into that kind of problem or that vibe? No, not really. I think, um, I mean, it's always so weird to say the church or Christianity because it's Uh so varied. Sure. Like, you know, the funny example I give from my own life, which I think is part of where I got my humor from, is my parents when we were when they were married we went to like a Nazarene like community church they got divorced and it was almost like a 
a good picture of why they got divorced. Like my mom went straight to Roman Catholic and my dad went straight to Pentecostal. Uh-huh. And uh, so there's a completely different version. Wine and snakes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Wine and snakes. <laughs> Sorry. I, I say it with love. I say it with yeah, love. Yeah, no, it's uh, hilarious. Um, but uh, yeah, so I grew up I, going alternate weekends to those two different churches and realizing, you know, so uh, different churches react in different ways. We get some hilarious responses from people that are very legalistic, you know. Uh-huh. Like I did a series of, these were actually pretty controversial. And, you know, one of the things that's funny is we'll make jokes about, uh, the whole you know Trump Trump and Jesus walking hand in hand kind uh-huh. of thing. <laughs> so because there was a famous painting or this painting online of Trump signing legislation and Jesus is just, yeah, had his yeah. hand on like a ghost image of Jesus. Yeah. So I did a series of paintings of uh, other things Jesus was doing with Trump. <laughs> and so like there's Jesus helping Trump get the perfect golf swing, and <laughs> Jesus with his hand on Trump as he as he tweets Kofife, <laughs> and just all these things and. The anger, both at the anti-Trump <laughs> stuff and the and, and saying that it was like sacrilegious, like the, you, you could see like the uh, different people kind of yeah. bubble up on certain jokes you make. Um, yeah, it's sort of like the Seinfeld where Jerry is offended by Chris by uh, Chris Watley's uh, conversion to Judaism, and um, and someone says to him. And Jerry becomes convinced that Watley's done it so he can tell Jewish jokes. And and someone says to him, "So you're 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 offended as a Jew?" And Jerry says, "No, I'm offended as a comedian." <laughs> you can see how some people will be like, I, "I could from going from my Twitter replies and my, uh-huh. um, I'd be curious if you actually could do get the data on how many people were offended." Because this was offensive to Trump versus offensive. Yeah, to Jesus. no, that's been yeah. my joke too. That yeah, yeah, they'll be more offended about the Trump thing than the Jesus thing half the time. Yeah, like there was one recently we did. I do that. Like, if you ever see the infographics, those are uh, mine. And we did one about how to how to escape a prayer circle. <laughs> like when you're stuck in a prayer circle, it's going and going. And one of the ones like there's all these options. Um, was to start praying in tongues, but to have it be like dangerously close to swearing. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just make everybody really nervous. They're like, oh, let's close it down. So, but I saw a response from you guys. Like, I'm done with the Babylon B. I'm never going to, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm unsubscribing because you joked about praying in tongues. Like for them, that was, you can't joke about that. So yeah, it's, it's more like that. There's all those little landmines, but we, we tend to kind of like separate ourselves from the, uh, we don't read a lot of the negative comments. We just uh-huh. kind of, we throw our jokes out there and just let it be. So yeah, I, I've learned that a long time ago is to, um, like I haven't been to the LA Times comment section in I've been oh, comments there for years. <laughs> for 15 years, I haven't looked at the comments. Yeah, because yeah. uh, it's it's sort of like the SS guy opening up the Ark of the Covenant. You know, at the end of the, <laughs> just like just face melting horror. Yeah, though you have to admit when like if Shapiro re, Shapiro retweets us constantly, mm-hmm. and it, it, it's an endless source of entertainment to read. He has a lot of followers who think they're real news stories, and that's really fun to read them. <laughs> Those comments that think it's real. <laughs> so how like, but no one thought that like Jesus helped Trump swing, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, one of the funniest comments is uh, that I saw on those was like, I really want to retweet this, but if I do, my grandma is going to ask for the commem- commemorative plates of this painting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you were also just so listeners know what a celebrity we have here. Sure. You were the creator of Axe Cop. I was well. I was the older of the two. 
That's right, because your little brother. Right. right? Or what, so why don't you tell people what Axe Cop was okay. or is? Or yeah. And I want to ask you whether Axe Cop could be, defeat the Bears, but that's you can, you can think about that. So uh, yeah, so Axe Cop was a web comic that I created with my five year old brother at the time that I was twenty nine. Um, so he's twenty four years younger than I am. Um, but but, but that, emotionally about the same age. Yeah, because yeah, yeah, yeah. I was single. And everything. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you, you kind of stop growing up around five years old until you get married. Um, so I, yeah, so we were playing this, he wanted to play, he basically wanted to play cops with me, but he uh-huh. got, had a toy fireman axe from this fireman day that he'd just gone to. So he like, will you play axe cop with me was what he asked. Cause in his mind, that's what you would be if you were a cop who forgot his gun and was like, oh, there's an axe. I'll use that sure. for that crime. Absolutely. So we played and it's one of those kind of things where I just had to draw this comic and I decided I'd just do it for the fun of it. So I was visiting my family for Christmas and I ended up making like three or four pages of this Axe Cop comic while I was there. And then I had wanted to get into web comics, so I posted the comics online more as a way to kind of test the waters of web comics for mm-hmm. one that I was plotting out, which was my comic Bear Mageddon. Uh-huh. And uh, Axe Cop went insane viral. Like it was the entertainment weekly website of the day, like the next morning. And uh, Like the morning after you posted it? We posted it. Well, we posted the website, and it was like the website kind of like nothing happened for about two days. Mm-hmm. And then it went viral, like, and next morning it was Entertainment Weekly website of the day. All these phone calls coming in, all these articles going up. Uh, It was crazy. Um, So, yeah, so it it became – so we we only had, like, five pages at that point. But in that probably, like, a six-year period, we we put out six volumes of comics together. Mm -hmm. And we uh, did a TV show on Fox, Late Night Fox, with Nick Offerman. From Parks and Rec to The Voice. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it was this crazy whirlwind experience where me and my little brother, like, made this comic that became this crazy sensation for a little while. And it just, because you did TV, it was just, you're, you're just raining cash, right? I mean, <laughs> That's what people think, You're just yeah. independently wealthy now? <laughs> for a midnight 15-minute cartoon that didn't, didn't do so well, yeah, it doesn't really rain cash for that. But, yeah. Uh, um, coins, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. There's some money. So I want to ask you about it. You self-published this, which is right. a concept I'm kind of fascinated by. And I'm holding up the incredibly difficult-to-get collector's item. That's the collector's version, yeah. Hardcover version. And according to the print run, it's number 11 of 500. So Got you one of their first 20. Yeah, so you're going to have to sign it before you go. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm going to see if I can get my daughter to write a paper on this next year. Um, but um, – uh, so I'm, you know, I've written a few books. Mm-hmm. The publishing industry has changed a lot. Just walk me through the process of self-publishing a book. This is my first time. It was totally an experiment. Um, I just got sick of begging. I mean, like, man, you know, I'm like, I've put out six volumes of Axe Cop. I had a TV show. Like, could you just give me a shot, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, like, the publishing industry is so hard and the, they're still so picky and um, I really wanted to try it, and so I decided to do it with this because this is kind of an almost like a, a side project of mine. Mm-hmm. I, I had started creating these bear jokes as a um, – oh, wait, can I say they're jokes? Are we still in character? No, it's okay. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. I started creating them as a way to kind of uh, – it was just me experimenting with marketing, really. Like I was trying to get people to check out my comic, Bear-mageddon. Uh-huh. And so I thought, well, when you share a page of a comic that doesn't get shared – but I, I first made – so I started making these little bear safety memes uh-huh. um, that were – Those are great. That's how I first sort of – Yeah. And they, uh, yeah they, they, and it's crazy how viral they've gone. Like they've gone to like first thing – number one on Reddit uh-huh. before like 
they get robbed. Like people will take my logo off and then they'll share them like crazy. So uh-huh. that's one reason that I always make them the same font and color scheme because just kind of uh, trying to keep like a brand look going. Because I knew at some point I'd make a book of them. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was like never like my goal to like be the guy who wrote the bear book. And um, it's not like a like I really enjoy making them, but like it, it's an experiment because I, yeah, I've been very curious about self-publishing. And I wanted to like kind of like when I put Axe Cop on the Internet first because i wanted to test out web comics first before i did my real one <laughs> i put quotes up sorry i'm on a podcast yeah. um yeah so that's kind of what this book was but you know it's kind of it's just grown and gotten crazy and like you know it's kind of like any project you get into like I, by the time it's done you're in love with it and uh but so can you get it in a bookstore is it a- so right now um you can get it on amazon um i haven't figured out the bookstore thing the the distributor that i talked to told me that i have to be selling like a thousand a week before they'll take me on i'm like all right yeah that's gonna be really that's gonna be a lot of work to sell a mail a thousand books from my garage a week and yeah. then call you well but the like, thing is if you're selling a thousand a week do i really who, who cares yeah. about being in bookstore i know that's <laughs> money that's some serious money yeah 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 exactly i'm gonna have to at least hire some people to, in my garage to sell books yeah so but have you have you hit break even on it yet oh uh, yeah well, um, th- that's the good thing is i did a kickstarter yeah to, to launch it so all the books are paid for uh, with a little bit of uh, leftover money, yeah. Um, but I will have to buy another printing fairly soon uh-huh. if they keep selling at the rate they're selling. So, particularly after this podcast, yeah, yeah. I'm hoping. Yeah. Um, and also for listeners right now, uh, I'm my daughter because you guys are political people. Uh-huh. My daughter is trying to earn money to go on a trip to Washington D.C. My uh-huh. 12 year old daughter, and uh, so she's doing all my packing right now on my Amazon books. So, if you order the book on Amazon. You're helping her get get on that trip. You're helping a 12-year-old go to the swamp of D.C., yeah. Excellent. She's going to look at the stuff. Don't worry. She's not going to become a, a politician. <laughs> um, well, no, it's good. It's good when they visit because they can get uh, inoculated without getting infected. Um, um, there are bugs in the studio. I just he killed don't... a bug while he said that. Yeah. He, as he said infected, he, sna- he smashed a bug. That was um, like something out of a movie script. And it's weird because, like, I was – Upstairs, I stepped on a giant spider. I mean, it's like there's, it's like the beginning stages of, of some weird horror movie. Where, yeah, you know, you first just see a couple <laughs> bugs, you know, yeah. and or like one snake on the plane. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> so, so I saw Arachnophobia when I was way younger than I should have been, uh-huh. and that that was a bad experience for me. So that that movie is that's like what you're thinking of. Yeah, yeah, similar. Sure. Uh, soon there will just be an, at the end of the movie just. Spiders will crawl out from one part of our building and just cover the whole thing. Yeah, it'll just become black. And then, and then Jeff Daniels will be stuck in the basement with a bunch of wine to fight off the spiders. That's how that movie ends. I didn't. I didn't. It was a bad movie. Alert. I mean, that's part of the problem. I don't know how it ended after that. I don't, I, I don't know how he got out of there. Yeah, it's, but I um, assume he did. It's 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 not good. It's a bad movie. Um, <laughs> I mean, I've seen it a few times, but you know, I can say that about a lot of bad movies. Um, but there are worse movies that work on this premise too. Uh, I'm older than you guys, but the 4:30 movie, which was a big deal when I was a kid in the 1970s, um, some weeks they would have Horror Week or Monster Week. Um, uh, you know, the, I, that's how I learned all of the canon about Godzilla. Was you, hmm. you know, would have them every day after school, and rather than like commit yourself to like the kind of schoolwork that would have gotten me into a halfway decent college. I, you know, <laughs> I watched these things and including, you know, 
which some some people think is a Tojo Productions thing, the thing with the flying turtle that spins by shooting jets out of its oh, yeah. leg holes. That's actually from a, the rival, so the the DC giant monster and <laughs> the Godzilla universe of Tojo Productions. Anyway, but they had they had one one of the movies that would be on there often. I think it was called Squirm. We can look this up. Um, and it was about killer earthworms. <laughs> and if they spent more than $65 on the special effects budget on this thing, <laughs> I'd be shocked. So what they would have to do is the camera, like the guy would be in a row. I remember a guy being in a rowboat and he would see a couple of earthworms in his boat and he'd kind of freak out. And then the camera would have to pan away to like the shoreline. <laughs> mm-hmm. When the camera comes back, they're all over his face. Like they've glued <laughs> them there because they couldn't. They never explain how the earthworms moves quickly enough so to like fast, yeah. attack people. Unlike bears, where you could actually right. plausibly understand how. Yeah, since to be on brand, there's that's something very similar happens in the Dune movie, the '84 one, because uh-huh. they have the giant sandworms in that movie, but they never show the special effect of. Uh, they always show the worms separately from like people on the worms. Uh-huh. So like those are clearly two different shots. They just did not have the resources to yeah. do yeah. that in 1984. Yeah, but maybe they will in 2020. We'll find out. Yeah, well, that's that's a subject for another podcast. So, all right, I'm done crashing this podcast. No, that's all right. I mean, we're, we're, just, we're just figuring this stuff out. Um, um, no, but so the reason I'm fascinated by the self-publishing thing is that, um, you know, when I wrote my first book. Ebooks were not really a big thing, mm-hmm. and bookstores were. I mean, uh, like they were bookstores. Yeah, and um, uh, and I always felt like, okay, so the publisher is actually adding serious value here, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know how to make a book, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know how to get a book into three thousand bookstores around the country. And so they're they're not just a middleman leeching off of my you know, the the sweat of my brow, they're yeah. actually providing something that I can't do. Now as we're moving much more towards ebooks with everything, um I know how to send ones and zeros through space. Yeah. Right? And the the value add that publishers do, uh look, I like my editor, I like my publisher the last time around and all that kind of stuff. But it's just that they are now turning more into sort of middleman mm-hmm. gatekeepers than right. actual value adders. Right. And so I, I'm kind of intrigued by the self-publishing thing, but it's just, it's hard to figure out. Some people actually make real money off of self There's a yeah, whole I, separate industry. I, of it, I, got, right? I got a friend who, he could never make it in, uh, in publishing. He's a fantasy author, but he has managed to, through Amazon, he just started putting his own books up. Yeah. And he's making his living selling. Cause Is it Bigfoot Erotica? It's uh there there I think there might be a Bigfoot erotica scene. Uh-huh. Yeah. But uh I was surprised <laughs> I didn't find anything about Bigfoot yeah, in here. Sorry. Which you would think there would be some crossover. Yeah. Well, but there's, super there's intelligent. so much more to be I've, I've thought about my next book being Bears versus Gorillas the science. <laughs> I'm not sure. It's <laughs> one of my thoughts. <laughs> That's a huge hot hotly if you ever bring that up online it just go you the th- thread will never end. Uh-huh. Um, so, like, remember, like, 20 years ago, there was a big thing, even made a reference into Buffy the Vampire Slayer, like, pirates versus astronauts or um, ninjas versus oh, yeah. Vikings. People mm-hmm. would argue about who could win yeah, those kinds yeah. of fights. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many things after the fact. Like, even as I was writing the book, people would be suggesting things on Twitter. I'm like, oh, yeah. So, I go back and, like, add it in. Yeah. There's so many things that could still be added into the book. Well, I mean, this could be just volume one. Yeah. Or there could be the, you know, whenever they have the... You know, ten year anniversary edition. You add uh-huh. a few chapters or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, 
actually, you know what you could do is, which would actually be pretty funny, is for the some future edition, um, add a chapter that is just a response to your critics and like <laughs> half make, you know, make them up what they yeah. said about the book, you know. Um, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, some of you, uh, I think some of your listeners probably know Frank Fleming. Sure. I think we're mutual friends. I think that might be how you found, you found me because he shares my stuff a lot. Yeah. But he did a comedy pass on this book because we're good friends. We're working on a few things together. He's actually a Babylon Bee writer too. A lot of people don't know that. But, uh, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, one of our funniest. And uh, He co-wrote a piece for the USA Today about 15 oh, really? years ago. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of the funniest guys I know. Yeah. But yeah, like most of the fake quotes on the back of the book are Frank Fleming's. Uh-huh. I can see that. He's the guy who um, introduced one of the most important foreign policy ideas of the last 20 years, nuking the moon. Oh, yeah. Um, which is a as a demonstration effect kind of thing. You know, you know, Saddam Hussein would have listened to us a little bit more if we had nuked the moon, That's right? Weird. Yeah, um, I never did get the point, but yeah, that makes sense. Um, well, no, it's it's, it's it's a real theory in, in international relations. I knew a guy from Taiwan who loved the Iraq War because it sent the signal to the Chinese that this crazy cowboy in the White House was willing to send, you know, an army halfway around the world to take out some dude who, like, <laughs> offended his dad, you yeah. know? And it's like, <laughs> if the country's willing to do that, maybe they'll actually be willing to protect Taiwan. A country that is willing to nuke the moon is a country you have to listen to. Yeah. Um, that's true. But you can't nuke the bears because they live among us, right? Mm-hmm. So that's they the problem. They turn more bears, yeah. yeah. They'll absorb the, the atomic blast. Well, it's sort of like... Um, and Snopes actually has done stuff on this. Every time there's a hurricane, someone proposes nuking the hurricane. Oh, yeah. And like... Some Sharknado, I think. Yeah, well, but like <laughs> Scientific American or someone actually has a great explainer of why this is a really, really bad idea. Because basically what it does is it makes a giant radioactive hurricane. Yeah, they say, <laughs> they just blow radioactivity everywhere? Yeah, no, it doesn't dissipate huh. it, you know, it just... Huh. Um, makes it radioactive which is not ideal for hurricanes um all right so i'm trying to think is there i i I know you want to steer clear of most politics type okay we'll talk about whatever yeah i mean um but uh (coughs) yeah it's weird because i my my i think i first heard you on prager way back uh when you were talking about liberal fascism Mm -hmm. and i was drawing my first comics that Kind of first got published called Chumble Spuzz, which were quite unheard of, but like they got great reviews. Uh-huh. Got me like a the the Emmy of comics. I got nominated for humor way back, but nice. uh, yeah. So it's kind of a cool like. So here we are talking. Now. Yeah, I mean, at one point I talked to somebody about doing a graphic novel for that book, which would be kind of cool. Oh yeah, um, interesting. But these days, now that I'm like the house goy at NPR and <laughs> and um, everybody on the Right says I'm a rhino squish, and everybody on the, you know, uh, probably leaning into the liberal fascism thing. I don't, I don't know, maybe maybe it would work. Um, <laughs> yes. Actually, I do want to talk to you off air about an idea I have for an okay. illustrated book that nice. you actually would be good for. I wanted my daughter to work on it, but because um, she's actually a pretty good artist. <laughs> um, but we'll talk about that off air. Because um, if I talk about it on air, it's such an amazingly good idea. Someone will just take yeah, it. I'll steal it. Yeah, it happens all the time. Um, so I learned when I was listening to the Conservatarian podcast, um, which is a really great n- niche podcast over at Ricochet, um, <laughs> that you're a big Chesterton guy. Oh, yeah. I love G.K. Chesterton. Um, 
there's not much obvious Chestertonian themes in Bears Want to Kill You. <laughs> but if you want to make that case, I'm 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 open to it. I mean, what is it that you, you as a believing Christian, mm-hmm. is it is it mostly the 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 Christian apologetics that I you like? It, it is. It, it's as it's as a believing Christian and as a it's pro- he probably speaks to me the most because he is like I, I believe he went to art school uh-huh. initially. I think he was going to be he want, he does he was a cartoonist. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, Jack will. He did out. draw, but I know I, but I believe initially, or at least. Yeah, anyway, there's a big part of Chester that's an artist, and he thinks very artistically. Uh-huh. So he speaks my language in a lot of ways. But I also like the way that he, um, I mean, besides just his message, which I love his messages on humility, on wonder, um, his defense of his faith is so unique purely to him. Yeah. Which is like like more than wanting to use his defense of the faith to tell people, like, I want to be able to, like, defend my faith and my views in that way that he does in that jovial, original way. Yeah. Which I feel like, you know, a lot of, you know, it's it's kind of like I was on, I don't know if you know Michael Malice, but I was on Michael Malice's show the other day and he was, we were talking about how conservatives tend to be, uh, you know, uncreative. Like we kind of get rigid and we mm-hmm. like to copy arguments and just kind of take the shortest path. And so I think that's what I love about Chesterton is he's, um, he's very, he's artful, you know, and, yeah. uh, he doesn't just make his case. He writes beautiful things that are fun to read, make you laugh. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I, so I come to Chesterton. Actually, I started reading a lot of Chesterton um, when I was working on liberal fascism, in part because during the height of the eugenic stuff in England, during the progressive mm-hmm. era, he was like the only, like literally yeah. the only guy saying, <laughs> what the hell are you guys doing? And you're getting Seriously, yeah. big fights with H.G. Wells about all of this. Mm-hmm. And he, witch hunting and it was incredibly dangerous and it was a you know sinful crime against god and nature and all these kind of things and and people thought he was a crank for it and i, I was like you know it's one of the things that you know it's like one day when you're proven right about bears want to kill you and there's <laughs> there's something about being a writer that when this hope of one day people will look back on what you wrote and say oh my gosh he got it right yeah you know and there's so much of that stuff so i come to chesterton partly from that but also his understanding of of conservatism, not just as a political program, because there's some he's kind of off the rails mm-hmm. on some of that as, as, on the politics side of it, mm-hmm. but as like his defense of dogma. I mean, I Jack gets sick of how many times I reference Chesterton on dogma, but like it's like my it's one of my favorite pieces of writing and Chesterton's fence thing, mm-hmm. which I think is just an incredibly important insight. Um, you know, if I could. If you're going to make a list, a bullet point of like 10 things to teach future policymakers, having them actually sort of understand the Chesterton's fence point, mm-hmm. which for listeners, if you don't know, it's this basically this parable where he says, I mean, I'm, I'm boulderizing it, but where a guy comes to him and says, there's this fence in the middle of the woods. It makes no sense. It's crazy for it to be there. Um, we should tear it down. And Chesterton says the, the sort of, wise person says no you can tear it down only after you figure out why it's there right and the desire to tear down the fence without actually first understanding why it's there is the zeal of the reformer and all sorts of things right Mm -hmm. and so he has this very hayekian understanding of tradition you know he calls it democracy for the dead yeah the democracy which i think is a great way of thinking about it it's like you know we have an investment about what we want the future to look like too Mm -hmm. and but we live in, in the progressive era. We have this tendency to 
have this fierce urgency of now or really the fierce arrogance of now. And we mm-hmm. think that anybody who came before us is an idiot. And Chester turns all of that on its head, which I love. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Even how he, he, uh, you know, says to question everything, you've, everything you've been taught about the caveman, like in his, uh, I'm blanking out on which book that was everlasting man. That's what it was. He starts off the book, you know, kind of railing against like the, the ideas that we just apply to the caveman because of, uh, of just our view that we've obviously evolved from that. But he says, all we have is artwork on a wall. Like, it's all we know about mm-hmm. the caveman is that there's artwork on the wall. And so we add all these ideas to it that, like, you know, he was clubbing women over the head and then writing and drawing on the wall. Or, um, there's obviously some backwards religion or something, but, you know, he just points out that we don't know what it was. We right. don't, that could be the nursery, that could be drawings for his child, you know. So. I don't think it's maybe. sort of like we make all of these assumptions about how bears live based right. on the bears <laughs> that we see. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm working for you here. I'm trying to bring it back to the themes of your book. <laughs> bring it back, yeah. <laughs> so. All right. Well, Ethan, thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, um, unfortunately, sure. I have to cut it a little short because i got to actually write a column and we have some housekeeping stuff we got to do. But uh, it was great to have you on. The book, if there were a camera here, I would hold it up to it, is <laughs> um, Bears Want to Kill You. And I'll read you some of the blurbs from the back. There are many known techniques for surviving bear attacks. This book disproves them all from the Library of Bear Fighting. Uh, Roscoe McBroom, who's a paranoid slash vindicated guy, says, I've always lived in fear of being pile-driven by a bear. Now I know that fear is justified. So anyway, Ethan, you're doing heroic work that no one else will do, and I'm really grateful for it. So thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. All right, so uh, Ethan Nicole has left the building. Uh, um, Jack, what'd you make of that one? Uh, I was disappointed. So there's one one thing that I wish he had covered the um, the apparently Berenstain Bears. Uh huh. Have you heard of this? There's there's a so the, as an offset of the Mandela effect, which is the the theory that we inhabit a parallel reality based on the fact that some people have different memories of how certain things transpired. Uh-huh. Um, Why is it called the Mandela effect? Because I think apparently the most popular, one of the most popular misconceived memories, like the the original one was um, people thinking that Nelson Mandela died in prison in the 90s, huh. which I have no, I that was never a false memory for me. Uh-huh. But one that I definitely have is the spelling of the Bernstein Bears, which I, I assumed was just Bernstein like Leonard Bernstein. Because uh, I had neighbors growing up with the last name Bernstein. Not it wasn't Leonard Bernstein mm-hmm. <laughs> um, or Bernstein, whatever it's pronounced. Uh, but I, and I was always I remember telling my mom like, "Oh, it's the Bernstein Bears, like like my neighbors." And she never told me like, "No, Jack, you're you're spelling it wrong. It's Berenstain." See, I remember the Berenstain spelling. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, yeah. A, with two A's. Not two A's. <laughs> it, yeah, it's B A R E N S T A I N. Apparently. Okay. I, I remember there being an A in there. I remember saying an A out loud when I saw the name of the thing. So I just want to know what this – his book's thesis may bear on this contention. So to speak. Yeah. Um, hey, we, get, we had no bear puns either. I can't bear it. Uh, unbearable. Um, but – and you never even mentioned the fact that uh, the, the breaking news that nas- that bears are using our national forests as toilets. I know. I know. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. And I also um, – and I didn't ask him, what's your sign? Uh, Ursine? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, uh, 
lot of missed opportunities. But I, I especially given what he said about bears being transdimensional, uh-huh. like yeah, yeah. if if they are, then they could be responsible for the, this mischief. And maybe maybe there's a connection with the orb, right? Um, you could see how that might have summoned bears or something like that. But uh, no, I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, he's 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 a really nice guy, and I love a lot of his stuff. And I, th- I actually do think the book is pretty damn funny. Um, but he was, he's a little reserved, I thought. Um, I mean, I think when you've seen the horrors that he's seen. Right. Um, it's very similar to um, the, the the story he described reminds me of the movie Annihilation that came out last year. How they uh-huh. just kept in, kept sending in those research teams and they all, none of them made it out. Yeah. And then it's, in the movie, there's actually, there is a bear. There is. Um, a very unsettling bear. Yeah. There's also, um, I mean, it's also like what happened with some of those interns in episode 11, but we don't need to get into that. No. Um, no, we... We shouldn't. And actually, I didn't get to mention, again, I'm pretty sure this is, I mean, it's been a long time. I think I wrote about it 20 years ago. So you know what bear repellent is? Yes. Okay. It's basically mace, right? It's pepper spray. And and, and, and Is it stronger than actual mace, than, than human mace? Uh, I think yes. Um, although there's some human mace that is like illegal for private citizens to own, like <laughs> melts flesh and that kind of stuff. And so I don't know about that. But um, there was a story about how tourists in Alaska or Canada who were basically going on sort of North American safari kind of thing were – didn't understand that it was pepper spray and thought it was like mosquito repellent. Oh, gosh. And they put it on themselves. And the thing is pepper spray smells like pepper. So it actually attracted bears. And – because, like, from a distance, the bear is like, mmm, nachos, you know? <laughs> and, and that's the whole thing. When you're in bear country, there's so much emphasis on how you treat your food, how you pack your food, how you dispose of your food and all the kind of stuff. So if you put pepper spray on you, you smell like food to bears, and they can smell you from very, 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 very far away, in, according to Ethan, from other dimensions. Yeah. All right, so I wasn't kidding about having to write a column. I think we'll just save the Mueller stuff. I'm sick of the Mueller thing already, um, unless you have some very strong opinions about it. Nope. I do. <laughs> I, I I have some opinions about it, but I, I'm happy to save them because I think everybody's sick about it. Um, I'll also save where I stand on the whole Sora, Bamari, David French kerfuffle, um, by, besides from saying I'm on Team French. Gotta love these internecine kerfuffles. Yes. Um, There's a mouthful. But I want to say, you know, this is scheduled to be the last true episode of The Remnant as a National Review podcast. Yep. And we're going through an enormous amount of logistical, technical stuff. Mystical. To, mystical. There's a, you know, we're sacrificing, you know, so many goats to ball, you wouldn't believe it. And and I'm sure I'll have an opportunity to do this in a better and more forthright way that maybe isn't after a long discussion about transdimensional bears trying to kill us. But I just did want to say that I'm incredibly grateful to to my friends at National Review, to Rich Lowry, and to everybody else, um, how supportive they've been of this move that I'm making. I'm also very grateful to all of you listeners out there who, at least the ones I've heard from, um, who have been very supportive about all of this. And we'll have some information for places for you to go to find the Remnant Podcast when it leaves the National Review website. Um, it should stay in your normal iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play accounts, right? Right? Your feeds? Yeah. Yeah. 
Assuming we do everything right and have sacrificed the correct amount of goats. Right. And um, same thing with the G file. We will have ways for you to sign up for all of that. You can always check my personal website at jonahgoldberg.com, which will at least point you in the right direction to other things. And so, yeah, this is like I'm in open territory now. This is all new for me, uh, new for Steve Hayes, new for the other members of the team, including Jack Butler. And we are proceeding apace. We're still raising money. We're still looking to hire people. And we're going to be looking for advertisers for this podcast because we're going to be in charge of selling ads on this ourselves, hopefully with a really great salesman at some point soon. But if you guys could bear with us and bear with me, I'm incredibly grateful for the support we've gotten. And it's a big part of our strategy is that I'll hold on to some of that and that you guys will stick with us and that you'll feel like you were in on the ground floor of something exciting and great. Um, that's certainly how I feel about it. And we'll see what comes next. So anyway, thank you all very much. And wherever I'm, however this works out, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is... Uh, there's an interdimensional bear! Ah! <laughs>